We have dealt now with several uh, things that the Bible refers to as being the will of God. And uh, we dealt last week with 1 Peter chapter 2 and the will of God that um, the ignorance of foolish, foolish men uh, be put to silence with our well-doing and the fact that our well-doing uh, was what was to be the, the formula or the solution to the silencing uh, the ignorance of foolish men. And uh, we talked a lot about that and what the Bible had to say about that regarding submitting ourselves uh, to every ordinance of man, to abstain from flesh and lust, have our conversation honest among the Gentiles, to honor all men, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, to honor the King, and to be subjects to our masters with all fear. And so a whole list of things that uh, Peter gave to us last week uh, he gave it to him a long time ago, but we studied it last week. Yeah, if he gave it to us last week, then uh, yeah, that would have been that would have been a chore. But uh, but in essence, he gave it to us years ago for for last week. And so uh, I'm thankful for God's word that stands the test of time. Don't you? Uh, I really do. I thank him for a book that doesn't change and uh, the truth that's in it. All right, First Thessalonians chapter four. Tonight we're going to deal with the subject of sanctification. That's a a big word, and a lot of times is either misused or misunderstood. And so we're going to take a look at this. Look with me in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. We'll look in verse number 1, beginning in verse number 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren. So it's important for us to know anytime we're studying Scripture, there's a few questions we'll ask. Who is he writing to? Uh, who's doing the writing? Uh, what is the purpose or what is the occasion that he's writing this? And uh, I think it's important for us uh, to understand what are the issues that, that the writer is addressing. And these are questions as you come to Bible study. I think for us to understand the context and the gist of all that's being said there, uh, not only do we need the help of the Holy Spirit in praying and asking Him to illuminate this, uh, this passage as we read it, but it does help us understand who He's writing to, uh, who the writer is, what the occasion is that they're writing to, what the issues are that they're addressing. And I try to look up those things as I read and as I study Scripture uh, so that I don't mistakenly take something way out of context that is so simply and so simple to see and easy to see in context. So he's writing here to the brethren, all right? He's writing here to the church at Thessalonica. They weren't without their problems, um, but they were brethren nonetheless. He says... Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, uh, so ye would abound more and more. Boy, this verse is just chock full with nuggets of things that we can grab a hold of. One of them is, he begins by saying, we beseech you. And, of course, I've explained that word before. The word beseech is not just simply asking uh, in a casual way, as oftentimes we ask a favor or we come up to somebody and say, uh, in fact, before the service, Brother Mark said, uh, Pastor, I've got a favor to ask you. Uh, this word is more than that. Uh, beseeching often is uh, an appeal to the emotional state of a person uh, based upon uh, some benefacting uh, event that has taken place in their life uh, by a person that is sacrificed for their benefit. And we find that that is true in this case. He beseeches them with strong uh, emotion and with strong basis and reason behind it. 
He says, I beseech you, brethren. So it's more than just asking them. And then he says, and exhort you. And here's the reason for the beseeching. By the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I'm not asking you this of myself. I'm asking you this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I'm beseeching you. How I'm beseeching you. I'm beseeching you on behalf of the Lord Jesus. That as you have received of us, how you ought to what? Walk. And to what? Okay, there's a very simple truth taught there. Our walk ought to please God. It's that simple. You say, boy, that's awful profound. And yet oftentimes we read a verse like this and skip right over it. He's beseeching them that, that they, uh, uh, as they have received how they ought to walk, to please God, to, to, to walk the way that they had been taught, and that that was what would please Him. So ye would abound more and more. So it's not enough for... Uh, them to simply uh, be obedient, but that they do so more and more. It's not just simply enough for them uh, to walk and to make the attempt to please God, but we ought to be striving for it more and more. Paul is the one that, as he went through his Christian life, even though he was growing spiritually, in his eyes, as he grew, he learned more about how much he was not meeting the standard. And so it's one of those paradoxes in, in the Christian life that, the, clo- the closer you get to the Lord, the more you realize you're not as close as you should be. And it opens our eyes to these things. And so Paul is the one who's speaking of this, and he's saying, I want you to please God, but don't just uh, be in a, in a static uh, kind of equilibrium of this. He said, I want you to abound. And the word bound means more than is necessary. It's running over. And it's full to capacity running over. Abound more and more. In other words, every day... We ought to be striving even more than we were yesterday. Uh, even today, we ought to be more diligent in pleasing God than we were yesterday. And even now, we ought to be more focused on pleasing God than we were yesterday. And this is what he's speaking of here as he gets to verse 1. Now, as we come to verse 2, he says, For ye, what? Ye know. So these things that he's getting ready to share with them, are not things that they don't know. By the way, there are a lot of things that we know. And that's not usually the problem. The problem is usually that we don't take what we know, allow it to affect our heart, which in turn will dictate what we do with our hands. And that's where our problem is. It is either a disconnect from here to here, or from here to the hands. And I'll tell you this. It's usually the disconnect from the mind to the heart. Because I don't know too many people whose hearts are right that their actions are not affected by it. And so he speaks of this in verse 2. For ye know what commandments we gave you. And again, these are not Paul's commandments. By the Lord Jesus. Uh there are times where I've, in, in years past, I've talked with folks, and they'll come across a passage, and Paul does this at least once uh, that I know of, where he mentions, in I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, I speak this by command, or by, uh, uh, by command, or, um, I speak this by permission, excuse me. I speak this by permission and not by command. And a lot of people read that and say, well, this was Paul writing his own opinion. No, no. No, no. 
look at what he said. He said, I speak this by what? Permission. Permission from who? The Holy Spirit of God who is inspiring him and telling him to write these things down. And so don't get misconstrued by that or tripped up by that. If someone ever brings that passage to mind. These commands that Paul's writing in the church at Thessalonica are not Paul's commands. These, these, if you will, call them standards, and I don't have a problem if you want to call them standards, I think they are. But these standards that we find in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 are not Paul's standards alone. They didn't originate with him. Now, I believe Paul had them. I believe he failed in them as easily as you and I can fail in them. And that it was an ongoing battle day by day against the flesh, as we spoke about on Sunday. But these commands came from God, and it's vitally important we understand this. Because in verse 3, he says, For this is the what? The will of God. Even your sanctification. There's that big word. And then he's going to go on. We're going to stop there because we're going to come back to it. We're going to read from there down to about verse number 12 because he gives an entire list of things. So the will of God being our sanctification, he gives an excellent description of it in, uh, in verse number 1. Uh, he says, Furthermore, I beseech uh, you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk, and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Now, when we deal with the issue of sanctification, I want us to understand what it is we're talking about. Sanctification is an act of making us holy. It's a work, in fact, I would say, of making us holy. It is a continuous work of the Holy Spirit in applying God's grace that was given to us in such a way that it will affect and purify our hearts. It will alienate us from the world and it will cause our hearts to be exalted, our, our hearts to be, uh, the love of our hearts to be exalted in such a way that we love God with all of our hearts. So it's an act of or work of making us holy. It's an act of God's grace where the Holy Spirit purifies and alienates us from the world, from its sinful philosophies. And it causes our hearts to be exalted in a supreme love to the Lord Jesus Christ. An absolute love. Paul said it this way, that it was important that he have the what? Preeminence. He's above all things. He needs to have the preeminence. Uh, so, so this thing of sanctification, let me, let me look at this very quickly. Verse 1 shows us the pattern of this. First of all, there is the truth that is given. We find that, uh, he says, as you have received of us, how you ought to walk. And then there is the submission to that when he says, and please God. So to walk and to please God is the submission to that. Until we submit, and that, this is the thing about sanctification. Brother Harold and I were talking about this the other night. This is the thing about sanctification is the Holy Spirit does that work in our hearts. But unless we yield to it or become obedient to that work that He's doing in our hearts, until we submit to it, it is just called conviction. In other words, the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our life, and that is the method that is used uh, to draw us to a point of sanctification. 
But it is, uh, it is something that has to take place with both us and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the work, and we have to yield and be obedient to it. If by our own free, stubborn will, we decide as a Christian we're going to live carnally, and we're not going to let this convicting power of the Holy Spirit do its work of sanctifying us, then we're just going to be able, all we're going to be able to do is say the Holy Spirit has done a convicting work in us because we've not yielded to it yet. We're not sanctified in that area. So it takes it takes both parts. It takes the Holy Spirit's conviction, and it takes our submission. We often use the word yield. Uh, the song "I Surrender All." I heard someone say this years ago. Uh, they said we we don't like the word surrender. Uh, when it comes to dealing with our will to God. We would rather say, let's yield ourselves to God. And I was kind of puzzled by that. I thought, well, they're kind of similar. Aren't aren't you kind of saying the same thing? And he made a good point. He said this, surrender implies that there has been a battle and a war going on. And finally you wave the white flag and say, I'm just going to surrender. And and we all understand that the, (coughs) the war in our members is a constant battle. But wouldn't it be far better if we would come to God's Word already yielded to whatever truth God shows us, rather than saying, I'm going to read it, let it convict me, and then I'm going to battle and struggle with it. Wouldn't it be far better if we would yield to it? Well, sure it would. It would save us a lot of grief in our life. It would save us a lot of consequences for bad choices and decisions in our life. We could learn to yield rather than surrender. Now, if we do battle, I hope we do surrender. I hope we get to the place where we're no longer struggling or, or, or vying against the tug of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I think it's a great thing in our lives before we ever sit down to study or read God's Word to say, Lord, show me your truth. And I'll go ahead and make up my mind before I ever even read a page of this that if you'll show it to me, I'll walk in it. I think we ought to purpose in our hearts ahead of time and to yield ourselves to His truth ahead of time. Before we ever come to church, I think there ought to be a time. We, we, we take time to, to, to iron our clothes and to put on our nice clothing and to comb our hair as we go out the door, make sure we got breath mint so we don't uh, knock people over with our breath or brush our teeth. And we go through all this preparation and we go uh, find our Bible. We get our Bible and walk to church with it and get in the car. We do all this preparation. And the truth is, probably the greatest preparation we can do before we ever come to a meeting like this is to spend some time in prayer and say, Lord... I want to make sure that when I get there, my heart is wide open to your teaching. My my heart is yielded to the truth that's going to be taught tonight. And to walk in this place prepared for God to do work. I've heard sometimes people say, I don't go to such and such a church because I, I really just, I'm not getting a whole lot out of that guy's preaching there. And when I found out what church it was, it was a church that was preaching this book. I knew the pastor. I've heard him preach. I've sat under his preaching before. And I know that he preached the truth of God's Word. How can any Christian who has the Holy Spirit of God residing in them get to a place where they can sit under the preaching of God's Word, no matter how boring it may sound to our human and our fleshly ears, and not get a blessing out of it? The only way it happens is if we don't have our hearts prepared, if we're not yielded to it, if we don't have... Uh, come expecting for God to grow us and to, uh, to cause us to mature more tonight while we're in this, in this place and studying His Word. We ought to expect there to be a maturing work. Uh, let's call it this, a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives.
And so he speaks of this. Verse number 3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding, and He also gives us understanding of the importance or the urgency of incorporating that truth into our lives. He brings that conviction to us. It ought to affect our character, and if it affects our character and becomes a part of our character and a part of our being, it will affect how we act and how we live. It will affect our conversation. And then we are to learn and to understand the truth as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, but not just learn. We don't want to be like James spoke about and be a hearer of the Word only. We want to be a doer of the Word. And so not only do we come expecting to learn something from God's Word, but we ought to come expecting for God to do a transforming work. Let's use this word, sanctifying work in our hearts. I think we ought to come expecting that. If we leave and that has not happened, I hope and pray that we're disappointed that it didn't. And that next week we better make sure that our hearts are ready for that. Now, I understand, and it's one thing, if a man of God is not preaching the Bible and he's not teaching the Word of God and he's just giving a lot of illustrations or telling a lot of jokes or a lot of anecdotes, I understand that there's times that you're sitting under that kind of preaching and don't get a whole lot from it. But when sincere men of God, and I don't care how dry they seem to be, are preaching the Bible, the the inerrant Word of God, and the Holy Spirit that lives within us is nudging us and, and pricking at us and saying, you need to listen to that. That's an issue. That's something you need to put in your life. It ought to charge our batteries. It ought to stir the heart. It ought to bring conviction. And that if we will yield to it, we'll bring about sanctification. So let's see some of the things that Paul tells the church regarding our sanctification. These are some of the works that the Holy Spirit does in us. And again, Paul is... The Bible would be so so exhaustive on this subject, we wouldn't... It would take us months and years to just read the one letter if Paul went through all of the works of sanctification. But he does give some of the more prominent ones. Some of the ones that at least in that day and in that church and among that group of believers were obviously an issue. And as I read through them and studied through them for this message tonight, I looked at it and said, boy, if they had a problem with it, I have to say we surely have had a problem with it in our day. So let's see what he says that you should abstain from fornication. Boy, if this isn't an issue in the day we live, I don't know what is. I'm not talking about those that are lost, and I'm not talking about those that just deny and hate God. I'm talking about those who claim to be saved and love the Lord, that are committing sexual sins and having no conscience about it. Fornication is a generic word that entails all types of sexual or sensual sins, and it will include adultery. Now, adultery is a more specific sin. It's it's still a sin of a sexual and an immoral nature in that sense, but it is with response or in regards to a marital bond that is affected by it. Fornication is anybody. doesn't matter whether you're single. doesn't matter whether you're married. And Paul says this, don't do it a whole lot. Is that what your Bible says? Just don't do it very much. Is that what it says? What's the word that Paul uses here? He says abstain from it. There's nothing wrong with abstinence. By the way, that would be well taught in our society today. 
You say, well, Pastor, that's a, that's, a, that's a touchy issue to be teaching on in our, in our churches. I believe that our society is in the situation it's in because our churches have been too silent on it. doesn't say you just play around with it a little bit. It doesn't say it's okay to have a little bit, just don't get under the control of it, just don't get a lot of it. No, no, it says abstain from it. Don't do it. Why? Because it's a work of sanctification in a believer's heart. And I will tell you this, there's not a believer alive that has been genuinely saved that has the Holy Spirit of God residing in them who has not had that conviction, whether they're denying that conviction and living their own way or not, every single one of them, I promise you, has had the conviction of abstaining from fornication. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of them. That's His work. That's what He does. Abstain from it. Look at verse number 4. There's a colon here at the end of verse number 3, by the way. And in case you've forgotten your English grammar, and I had to look this up the other night because somebody asked me this question, what does the colon mean? The colon puts a spotlight on what either came before it or it puts the spotlight on the phrase immediately after what was just stated. But they are so intimately tied together that you couldn't simply use a comma to delineate it. They are so strongly joined in thought that a colon must be used. So these are not two completely independent or separate thoughts. It is an issue of one highlighting and drawing attention to and giving emphasis to. It's almost as if you were to to put it in bold print and underline it and italicize it and highlight it with a yellow Sharpie marker. and, And that's the type of idea that a colon does. So let's see what it says here. That you should abstain from fornication, colon, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in, here's that word again, sanctification and honor. Sanctification being the work of grace worked out in us by the Holy Spirit by illuminating the truth and pricking our hearts by conviction that we need to obey it. That is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God. Unless we don't let it become sanctification, we need to yield to it. We need to say, yes, Lord. When that conviction comes to heart, we need to follow through with obedience in it. I've heard a lot of, a lot of people say, well, I can live however I want. I'm on my way to heaven. God's not going to take my salvation away. No, He's not. But your sanctification is sure not going to be what it should be. And it's going to cause two big problems. Number one, and it ought to be a, a, a thought so far from, from a believer's mind. But the first problem it's going to create is it's going to create lost people to look at your life as a stumbling block for them coming to Christ. How in the world a believer or a Christian could intentionally do something like that is beyond me. We, we become stumbling blocks enough unintentionally and by accident for us to go out of here and try to do it on purpose. The second problem that brings is we will bear the consequences, not in eternity, praise the Lord, but we will bear the consequences of our choices and our bad decisions on this side of heaven. Sin will always cost us. And it almost always will cost us way more than we thought it would. 
I was talking to somebody actually just today. And we were talking about another issue. It wasn't on sin, but it was a decision they were going to make. And I, we were talking about how it was a high-risk decision. And they said, well, as long as I know the risk going into it, that's the important thing. And I said, no, it's not. Knowing the risk of going into it is certainly important. But more important is, are you willing to live with the consequences of that risk going bad? It's not enough to say, well, I know what the risks are going into this. I'm going to choose this anyway because I don't think it's a a good situation. But I know the risks going into it. But we're not always thinking about having to live the rest of our lives with the consequences should that risk not work out. That's what we fail to look at. That's what many Christians fail to see when they come to this point in their lives. That every one of you should know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Honor? You mean I've got to honor this old beat-up flesh? Yeah. Why? For two reasons. Number one, it was made in the image of God and it belongs to Him. That's reason enough. But secondly, because once again... The world is looking at this life. They're not going to see this brain or this heart. They can't see it. What they're going to see is this body. And on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was speaking to the Simultines, He spoke of the fact that we're to be salt that has not lost its savor. And He gives the idea that a salt that has lost its savor is, is good for nothing. It's uh, made basically to tread under the, the, the feet of cattle and, and horses and stuff. It'll all be thrown into the streets. It's not any good for anything. And the implication is if our testimony is not what it should be, we become salt that's lost its safe. Then he uses the illustration <coughs> of a city that is set on a hill. And he doesn't speak good or bad of this. He simply says, and it cannot be hid. Whether you have a good testimony or a bad testimony, <coughs> you. You cannot say, I can live as I want because it's not hurting anyone. Yes, it is. Because you're a city that's set on a hill. If you claim that you know Christ as your Savior to anyone, your testimony will speak. Whether it's a good testimony or a bad testimony, it's going to speak. It cannot be hid. And then he uses the idea of a light that is oftentimes used to give light to the whole house. Just just a light. You say, well, boy, it'd take an awful big fire for it to light up the darkness in this world. Simple candle. Small flame. Jesus said, we'll give light to the whole house. You don't take and put a bushel over top of that. We're to possess this vessel with honor because it was made in the image of Christ and because we have a testimony to be before a dying world. Notice what else he says. Not in the lust of concupiscence. Boy, that's a big word, isn't it? Concupiscence is the idea of, of having a desire or coveting carnal <coughs> carnal things. To have an appetite for the worldly things. Uh, to, have a, to have a natural inclination for... Um, enjoyments uh, that were not lawful in Scripture. 
and it can include uh, fornication, but not always. It can be any fleshly desire or carnal desire that we lust after or long for. It's having an appetite that is more prone to seeking after the things of the world than it is seeking after the things of God. And so he says in verse 5, Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And here again we see the word Gentiles being used in the generic sense of those that are unsaved. He's speaking here of the spiritual Gentiles. In fact, he speaks oftentimes, and Paul spoke of this, that when a, whether it's a Gentile by birth or not, when they, get to, when they become saved, they are grafted in and they become part of the children of God. And we don't have the same promises the Jews have as, their, as God's chosen people, but we are given a part in that family. And so he's referring here to Gentiles generically, not as the, the nationality of people, but as the spiritual condition of people. The fact that they're not saved. And he says this, that, uh, that in the, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which what? Know not God. These Gentiles who know not God walk in the lust of concupiscence. If we walk in the lust of concupiscence, what does the world think we are? They're going to think we are Gentiles who know not God. You say, Pastor, why are we preaching on all this stuff? Because it's the will of God. Even our sanctification. This is God's will for every single Christian. Not just pastors, not just missionaries, not just Sunday school teachers, not just people that come to church and carry their Bibles. This is the will of God for every single believer that's trusted Christ as their Savior. It's God's will. Verse number 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, and we also have forewarned you and testified. Now, the idea of, of um, defrauding your brother is to take that which is rightfully his, to cause him not to receive that which was lawfully his. It may not even be us taking it, but it may be us hindering him from getting what is rightfully his, not to defraud his brother. There's a couple of applications of that, obviously, that can easily be said. Stealing from a, from a person would certainly be defrauding them. But even in a spiritual sense, the Bible tells us that we're to bear one another's burdens, we're to edify one another. And when we live in the lust of concupiscence and have unlawful desires of, of, of things that are not there, and that, then we, we become a discouragement to the brethren, then we have defraud, defrauded him. We're not allowing him to receive that which he rightfully deserves as a Christian. We're causing his walk with God to stumble. We're causing his desire as he looks at us and says, well, there's Brother Greg. I mean, he pastors the Keith the Heights Baptist Church. And look at what he's doing. Or there's Miss Sandy, or there's Miss Linda, or Brother Wayne, Brother Rich. I saw them in church last Sunday. And here they are now acting like that. We defraud the brother. Number, verse number 7, 
Verse number 7. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto what? Holiness. And so this idea of sanctification is a consistent growing or walk of becoming holy. Will we ever be absolute holy this side of heaven? No. Well, let me rephrase that. There will come a time during the millennial reign. We're not quite in heaven yet. But short of that, it's going to be a continuous battle. It's going to be a continuous battle. The Bible tells us this in verse number 8. He says, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to what? Love one another. So here he switched from telling them things they should not do to things that they should do. Part of their sanctification. You realize that a part of our sanctification is to love one another? Part of the Holy Spirit's work of making us holy is to love one another. And every time, it's easy to sink our teeth into these other things because before we say, boy, that's right, Pastor, that's, that's good preaching, that's sin, you ought to preach on that heart. And then we get to the thing of brotherly love. Okay, well, I may not have that one down as well as the others, but it is still the will of God. And it is still a work of grace in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to draw us to holiness. He says in verse uh, 5, I'm sorry, verse number 9, that we're to love one another. In verse 10, I love this. It says, And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that ye what? Increase more and more. So it's not enough for us to just love the brethren. He said, when you do it, we want you to increase in it. We want you to increase in it more and more. Verse number 11, again, another positive. That ye study to be what? Quiet. Study to be quiet. A Christian ought, to be, ought not to be known by the brashness of his speech. We ought to think carefully. We ought to think with the wisdom of God, with the graciousness of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to speak as that which becometh the gospel. But our speech be always seasoned with grace, the Bible speaks of. What is grace? That which we do not deserve, we've been given. If our speech is to be seasoned with grace, somebody does us wrong, and our our inclination, our fleshly desire is to to charge back at them with our tongue and our lips. I'm not talking about rebuking someone that's in sin. I'm talking here about someone who's done us wrong. And the blood pressure begins to boil. And you feel the blood pressure coming up in your face and the eyeballs bulging out and the veins beginning to show on the neck. And we speak our emotions rather than that which becometh the gospel. Paul says this should be increasing more and more, that we study to be quiet. Now notice he says this, 
and to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Verse 12, he says, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. So it's okay to walk dishonestly towards those that are within, just not those that are without. <laughs> that is not what the Bible is saying here. One of the, this is one of those things of emphasizing again. It goes without saying that we walk honestly. Paul's making certain that we understand the importance of it because of its impact on those that are without that would see it. Those that are within realize we're still sinners saved by the grace of God and we still stumble and they will pray for us and they will try to help us as brethren. But those that are without, they don't see us that way. They don't understand it that way. And he's emphasizing here not that we're dishonest in other areas, and this is the only way to get honest in. Obviously, we're to be honest in every case. But he's expressing, again, the importance of our outward testimony. Let's use this word, sanctification. Our yielding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in these matters. He's speaking of the importance of us understanding how much it affects those that are without if we are dishonest. What could very possibly be of eternal consequence towards someone. I don't know if we fully, any of us, from the pastor down, I don't know if any of us fully comprehend that when we do things contrary to God and we sin, the impact that it has on a lost person, I don't know if we fully comprehend it. I know we say that. We say, well, we've got to have a good testimony because you know, the lost are watching and we want to make sure that they, when we share the gospel with them, they, we have a message to back, or a, a life that backs up the message. And, but when was the last time we thought of this? If I don't love my brother the way I ought, it might send someone to hell for it. Why? He says to walk honestly towards them that are without. And again, for the emphasizing of the fact that in every area, and I don't think just in the area of honesty, but in every area, I believe, that's mentioned in chapter 4 here, and others that have not been mentioned that we find throughout Scripture as to how we're to live and to behave ourselves, I think he's trying to express the importance of the danger it is to live that way towards them that are without. Or not, excuse me, not to live that way towards them that are without. Not to fulfill the sanctification work of the Holy Spirit. It makes a difference to them eternally. In some cases, we are oblivious to it and don't even know it. There may be people that have been turned from the things of the Lord by seeing something in my life And they never told me. And I won't know it till I get to heaven one day. The importance of sanctification in a Christian's life. That we walk honestly towards them that are without. That ye may have lack of nothing. I don't think he's speaking here of material things so much as he's speaking of us maturing in the Christian life 
and becoming fully equipped, fully purged and cleansed to do the work that God's called us to do. We won't lack in any of this. We'll have brotherly love. We'll walk honestly towards them with or without. We'll increase in our brotherly love. You say, Pastor, why why did Paul write all of these things to that church in Thessalonica? Because in verse number 3, he tells us, For this is the will of God. It's the will of God. Even your sanctification. Are, are we allowing, by freely choosing of our own choice, to yield ourselves to 